very pleased to welcome today Jonathan Lear, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. And I'm especially pleased because I've known Jonathan for a very long time. In fact, I can remember the first time I met you in about November 1968. And a friend, Mike Mandelberg, called me over and said, come and meet this chap. This, this is Jonathan, and he's, he's wondering whether to do philosophy. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, what did I know? I'd only been doing it for about a month. But I said, yes, yes that's really great. You should do it. And, uh, uh, and so there we are. My, my, advice, my <laughs> advice bore fruit. And uh, here we are, nearly half a century later. I'm very pleased. So. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, he's uh, written many books in the time since then, uh, most recently. Uh, Radical Hope, uh, A Case for Irony, and most recently Freud. And today he's going to talk about integrating the non-rational soul. Thanks. Now I know whose fault all this has been. Um, I didn't know that till I came here. Um, I'm also I'm just delighted to see so many old uh, friends in the room. And in fact, two of the people in the room are the people um, most responsible for teaching me the Greek I know. And uh, I'm sure they'll correct me at the end. Uh, but I, but I'll show you what I, here's something I've learned since we we took we studied together. Okay, Eric, uh, this is called integrating the non-rational soul. Um, and also, say for those of you, if you have read the paper that's been circulated, I've made some slight changes. I've noticed some typos, smoothed a couple things out, but it's basically the paper. So Aristotle says, quote, there seems to be some other nature of the soul, aletis fuses te psukes, that is non-rational, but in, which in a way participates in reason. Now, the Oxford and Loeb translations give us a non-rational element of the soul, and the Rao translation gives us another kind of soul. So these translations flatten out the thought that with Fusus, Aristotle is here talking about a different nature. Now, since nature for Aristotle is an inner principle of change and rest, this would suggest that the non-rational soul on which Aristotle is focusing has its own principle of functioning. And this is a thought that's, I think, in danger of getting lost in translation. For Aristotle, we are in the best position to understand what a principle is when we grasp the excellent functioning of that of which it is a principle. Now, for the virtuous person, in this case, um, Aristotle mentions the temperate and the courageous person, Aristotle gives us two criteria. First, the non-rational soul is better able and more willing to listen to reason. And second, with respect to all things, it speaks with the same voice as reason. That is, uh, and that's homophone. And uh, uh, that is the excellence of this non-rational part of the soul consists in communicating, in listening to and speaking with reason. So the non-rational soul has a distinctive form of activity, but that activity is nevertheless communicative. It listens and it speaks. And performing that communicative activity well is nothing other than ethical virtue, according to Aristotle. For while we think of a person as having an excellent character, this excellence of character is a manifestation of the excellence of his non-rational soul. Now, this communicating function, the nature of the non-rational soul, also tends to get flattened out in the translations. 
So instead of drawing attention to listening, the Oxford translation says that the non-rational soul of the virtuous person is still more obedient to reason than the soul of the merely continent person. Of course, in a sense, that's true. But it gives, the, I think, the misleading impression that the breakthrough from continence to virtue consists in the degree of obedience per se. And, um, um, you know, um, the degree of obedience. But for the virtuous person, this issue is not the degree of obedience, I mean, it, per se. And I think you can think of fanatical compliance. Rather, it's the manner in which this obedience takes shape. It's obedience that flows from listening well and willingly to what reason says. And as another example, the Rao translation says that this non-rational soul of the virtuous person always chimes with reason. Again, I think that's true in a sense, but one bell can chime with another bell without being in communication. <laughs> Etymologically, the verb phoneo paradigmatically means not the sounds of chimes or bells, but the sounds made by voice, by speaking or crying out. And the voice can be, but need not be, endowed with logos. Aristotle uses the term to cover the cries and calls of other animals. And among other uses, Aristotle uses phone for the voice of the non-rational soul. So when the non-rational soul homophone with reason, it's not just chiming in, it's speaking with the same voice. And this shows up in the wholeheartedness of the virtuous person acting virtuously. But Aristotle suggests that this is both an outcome and manifestation of excellent intra-psychic communication. Now there are, I think, two, I suspect there are two reasons for this flattening. First, in this passage, Aristotle is not exclusively concerned with the excellent use of this non-rational soul, but also with a range of less than excellent manifestations. And that's because he is, in this passage, concerned to make a large-scale distinction between the nutritive soul, the non-rational part of the soul that at least he thinks in no way participates in reason, and the non-rational part that does participate in reason to some degree or other. Of course, this includes non-virtuous people, notably the merely continent person. The non-rational soul of the continent person never rises above obedience, though he is susceptible to admonishment, reprimand, and encouragement. And for him, excellent communication between the rational and non-rational parts of the soul is the very thing he's missing. And second, to a contemporary English speaker, the phrase speak with the same voice as, or listening better or more willingly to, may on a superficial first hearing sound as though it leaves out the act of living that is the life of the virtuous person. But for Aristotle, the courageous person acting courageously is precisely an instance of the non-rational soul listening better and more willingly to and speaking with the same voice as reason. The courageous person's act is a manifestation of this excellence of intrapsychic communication. Now, more is at stake here than the inter interpretation of a short passage from Aristotle. I think the question is what Aristotelian virtue consists in. Aristotle delineates an intermediate part of the soul that, depending on the way one looks at it, can be considered either rational or non-rational. And it is non-rational in that it lacks the proper capacities of reason, but it is rational in that it can participate in reason's activities and at its best can listen well to and speak with the same voice as reason. 
And it's on this distinction that Aristotle grounds his further distinction between the intellectual and the ethical virtues. And as we have seen, the non-rational soul has a nature, its own inner principle of change, which, can, which consists in excellent communication of the appropriate sort with reason. This communication is what the integration of the non-rational soul consists in. And we may not yet know much about it, but we are in a position to see that anything less than that must be something less than Aristotelian ethical virtue. Now, it is this possibility of the rational and non-rational parts of the soul speaking with the same voice that lends insight into why, for both Plato and Aristotle, psychic harmony should have ethical value. If we were creatures such that psychic harmony was a real option only when our capacity for reason was enfeebled, it would lose its appeal. What makes harmony attractive for these thinkers is that they see the possibility of reason being instantiated in an individual human being and the non-rational soul trained in such a way that reason can successfully communicate with the non-rational soul, thus manifesting itself in a life lived according to reason and untroubled by countervailing factors. It's another question what this possible harmony consists in. Aristotle is explicit, at least at the level of public policy, general education, and politics, about how this condition might be achieved. But he is a bit skimpy about what it consists in beyond saying that it is a speaking with the same voice. And in particular, he, as we have seen, Aristotle says that the non-rational soul has its own nature, and that means it has its own internal principle of change, even though he also said that in, in a way it participates in reason. If it participates in reason, it must be a form of mindedness. But if it has a different nature, a different principle of change, this implies that it is a different form of mindedness from that of the rational soul. But how can these two distinct forms of mindedness communicate with each other? How could there be a harmony of different natures? And I think it's not enough to say that each participates in reason. We need to know how they participate and how that makes effective communication possible. And this, I think, is a point where Aristotle's moral psychology starts to peter out. Um, for a mor moral psychology to be robust, and I'm sorry, I forgot to put Bernard Williams's quote on the handout here, but for a moral psychology to be robust, Bernard Williams has taught us, it must stake out a space that on the one hand allows for normatively laden concepts such as freedom or integrity or truthfulness as values, it lets them in as values, but on the other hand, it avoids collapsing into what he called a moralizing psychology, one that simply assumes the categories that it's seeking to vindicate. Now, I think this very space that Williams is trying to carve out is under pressure when Aristotle tells us that the non-rational soul of the virtuous person is obedient to reason. Aristotle is here using a concept he wishes to valorize without giving us what I think of as a sufficiently rich account of what the right kind of obedience consists in. Aristotle does say that the obedient, non-rational soul listens well to and speaks with the same voice as the rational soul. But within his philosophy, I think these terms are serving like suggestive placeholders. And if one could fill them in with real content, one would have a robust moral psychology. But without that filling in, it's difficult, I think, to avoid the charge that moralizing is going on here. 
Now, Aristotle does offer, I think, an intriguing model. The non-rational soul, he says, participates in reason as though it were listening to and obedient to a father. And of course, this is a patriarchal image. But the important point for now is that the nature of the non-rational soul is portrayed as essentially childish. It is as though it is impermanently en route to maturity, but its excellence does not exist, consist in reaching adulthood. Rather, the excellent non-rational soul is an excellent instance of a childish soul. Its excellence consists not in sort of what it will be when it grows up, but in a distinctively non-rational ability to listen to and communicate with reason. The external social model of intrapsychic speaking with the same voice would thus be excellent parent-child communication. The excellent child is excellent at attending to the parent's communication, and the excellent parent is excellent not only in knowing what to say, but in how to communicate to a child. Still, I think Aristotle's psychology, although this is a suggestive image, Aristotle's psychology leaves us without the resources to understand what this communicative relationship consists in. Now, a distinctively moral psychology, William says, quote, uses the categories of meaning, reason, and value, but leaves it open or even problematical in what way moral reasons and ethical values fit with other motives and desires, and how far they express those other motives, and how far they conflict with them." Unquote. And, and Williams, I think, famously thought that neither Aristotle's psychology nor Plato's psychology could live up to that task, and he, he looked elsewhere for inspiration. Again, a quote from Williams, quote, Thucydides and I believe the tragedians among the ancient writers had such a psychology, and so in the modern world did Freud, unquote. And this is the suggestion, and so in the modern world did Freud, that I would like to take up, but take it in a different direction than Williams envisaged. Unlike Williams, I do not see Aristotle's psychology as inevitably moralizing, but rather as unfinished. So instead of using Freud as a way of leaving Aristotle's moral psychology behind, I want to argue that psychoanalysis can provide valuable insight into the communicative relations between the rational and non-rational parts of the soul. It should thus be taken seriously by anyone who wishes not simply to study Aristotle, but to extend a broadly Aristotelian approach to contemporary ethical life. Now, at first, it might seem strange that I am linking Aristotle's non-rational soul to the Freudian unconscious, since the major activity of Aristotle's non-rational soul are manifest in emotional life, and our emotional life tends to be a conscious experience. However, Freud's discovery is that the non-rational soul has a significant unconscious dimension and that it proceeds according to its own form. Indeed, I believe Freud's most significant discovery is not of the unconscious per se, but that, but that the unconscious mental activity has its a distinctive nature. The unconscious, Freud teaches, proceeds according to loose associations and condensations of primary process mental activity. It works in a mode that is exempt from contradiction and in a temporality of timelessness, and it substitutes psychic reality for external reality. Now, by coming to understand this alternative form of mental activity, I think we can work out in significant detail the voice of the non-rational soul. 
And it also emerges from case, Freud's case studies that the non-rational soul, that part which he called unconscious, is typically engaged in a basic project, trying to address a problem of human existence, albeit in a non-rational and childish way. And thus it makes sense to think of the Freudian unconscious as, quote, another nature of the soul in Aristotle's sense, in that it has its own principles of change as well as a telos, namely negotiating a fundamental problem of human existence, albeit in a fantasied, imaginative, and non-rational way. And so in this sense, Freud's discovery is, I think, an, an enrichment of that original Aristotelian intuition. And psychoanalysis, the praxis, is the attempt to facilitate communication between the non-rational and the rational parts of the soul. Um, now, I think this has not been sufficiently well appreciated due to, I think, a misconception of what psychoanalysis is. And I think this misconception has various manifestations, um, but at its core is the idea of the psychoanalyst as the sort of expert on what is hidden in another person's unconscious mind. And in contemporary philosophy, psychoanalysis is often invoked as a kind of contrast case to the non-observational first personal authority we ordinarily have with respect to our beliefs. And here I'm not going to read through all the quotes that are on your handout, but I have quotes here from David Finkelstein and Richard Moran. I mean, two, you know, from my point of view, outstanding philosophers, but I think they show how psychoanalysis is used as the contrasting case of first personal authority and first personal knowledge. And the assumption is, you know, like with um, Finkelstein, imagine someone, Harry, who says, my therapist tells me that I unconsciously believe no one could ever fall in love with me. It's like, like she's the expert. And he goes on, you know, um, the claims I made about my unconscious states of mind are only as good as the evidence that backs them up. And then Dick Moran, you know, he, he, um, uh, he says, you know, the person who feels anger at the dead parent for having abandoned her, da, 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 may only know of this attitude through eliciting and interpreting of evidence of, of various kinds. And then at the end of the quote, she can only learn, learn of it in a fully theoretical manner, taking an empirical stance towards herself as a psychological subject. So there's, an, I think, just a very good example of, of the psychoanalyst as a, is involved as a contrasting case to something that the philosopher is really wanting to investigate. The other thing, the first personal authority or whatever. Now in this model, the psychoanalyst is this expert taking up an empirical stance with respect to the analyzan, perhaps picking up unusual bits of available evidence, and then making an inference as to what must be going on in the analyzan's unconscious mind. And the analyzan might also be good at encouraging the analyzan to take just such an empirical stance with respect to herself. Now, of course, in popular culture, there are very familiar images of the analyst as someone sort of relentlessly searching for repressed memories, um, or the analyst who somehow has the keys to unlock the psychic basement or a special light to shine under the cobweb stairs. Now, all of these images are based on something, but I think they basically misrepresent the psychoanalytic situation. Aristotle tells us that if we are to grasp an area of knowledge adequately, it's important to find the right starting point. And it's also, he said, we must distinguish the order from which we discover a field of knowledge from the order in which we should set it out when we understand its mature form. 
Now, at the beginning of his career, Freud was on the hunt for repressed memories, and he was willing to make so-called deep interpretations of what was purportedly going on in the analyzand's mind. An interpretation is considered deep if it's not easily available to the analyzand's own self-conscious experience. But Freud fairly quickly realized that simply telling a person the contents of her unconscious not only had no positive therapeutic effect, it regularly provoked irritation and resistance, and on occasion, it led to the analyzand breaking off the treatment. In effect, he recognized that simply telling, an analyz telling another person about himself, whether it be the truth or not, but simply telling the truth to another person about himself was not a therapeutic method, I mean, to put it mildly. Um, and by the time he writes Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through, which is in 1914, he gives a history of the development of psychoanalytic technique, which consists in abandoning deep interpretation or the search for any particular hidden item in favor of facilitating the analyzand's own free associations. This is number eight on your handout. I think it's very, very important. Finally, this is the quote, finally there evolved the consistent technique used today in which the analyst gives up the attempt to bring a particular moment or problem into focus. He contents himself with studying whatever it is, whatever is present for the time being on the surface of the patient's mind, and he employs the art of interpretation for the purpose of recognizing the resistances which appear there and making them conscious to the patient. From this, there results a new sort of division of labor. The doctor uncovers the resistances which are unknown to the patient, and when these have got the, been got the better of, the patient often relates the forgotten situations and connections without any difficulty." Unquote. So on this conception, the psychoanalyst is not an expert about the hidden contents of another person's mind. Rather, the analyst is a facilitator of the free speech of another. And in that same year that he presented this revised technique, he added a footnote to the interpretation of dreams. And here's the quote. The technique of dream interpretation, which I describe in the pages that follow, differs in one essential respect from the ancient method. It imposes the task of interpretation upon the dreamer himself. It is not concerned with what occurs to the interpreter in connection with a particular element of the dream, but with what occurs to the dreamer. The emphasis is now on the analyst facilitating a process through which the analyzand, him or herself, will come to be able to speak its meaning. And I think it's in this sense that psychoanalysis stands in a tradition of so Socratic midwifery. We can talk more about that in the discussion period if you're interested. Now, from the beginning, Freud encouraged his patients to say what was on their minds. But by 1912, he had explicitly formulated what he called the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis, namely that the analyzand should try to say whatever comes into conscious awareness without censorship or inhibition. Now, in calling this rule fundamental, in fact, calling, using the definite article, the fundamental rule, Freud signals that this is the basic norm of psychoanalysis. The analyzand is to try to speak his mind, and the analyst is to facilitate that process. And I take this to be a constitutive norm, that we come over time to understand what psychoanalysis is as we come to understand over time what is genuinely involved in facilitating a process by which the analyzand develops the capacity to speak his or her mind in an unfettered way. 
Now, whatever the complexities of technique, um, and there are complexities, I think it's worth noticing here a great simplicity, a single norm to, to speak one's mind freely. And there is, in, there is this, I think, also humanistic elegance. Whatever value, therapeutic value, psychoanalysis has, it flows through the self-conscious understanding of the speaking analyzand. Obviously, there are many different phenomena that one might use the term self-consciousness to describe, but the fundamental rule gives us the basis for, I think, an unusual and somewhat surprising claim, maybe not to all of you, but I think to, to many maybe, namely that psychoanalysis is the activity of facilitating the free flow of self-conscious thinking and, and mindedness. Now, this, I th this claim, I think, is more illuminating than I, what I take to be the ultimately misleading claim that psychoanalysis concerns the discovery of the hidden contents of another person's mind. Now, I think it's also misleading to characterize this relationship in terms of one person being an especially good observer of empirical evidence inadvertently disclosed by the other. Now, the psychoanalytic relationship is one of emotional intensity and mutual concerned engagement. And I think it's much more like a second personal I-thou relationship. Um, and, you know, as a formal matter, psychoanalysis begins with one person coming to another person and asking for help. And the other person responding that he or she thinks he can be of help precisely through offering psychoanalysis. So whatever the demands of psychoanalytic neutrality, it, that is not a stance of detached empirical observation. So an analyst may be on the lookout for empirically available evidence, notably a pause in the flow of speech, but it is in the context of a committed engagement to help. And this help does not consist in using such an occasion to formulate an empirically grounded hypothesis to present to the analyzand. Um, rather, it is an occasion to ask the analyzand if he or she is aware that you know, she is paused, um, and to wait to hear the analyzand's own reports of what she was thinking during the pause, where the mind wandered, and whether she had an internal sense of whether that pause was somehow related to what she was thinking. And I think, you know, for I, the analysts in the room will know this, the, to the non-analysts, I'll just say, it's astonishing how much will come to the analyzand's mind in this way. In such cases, the analyst is not proposing an empirically grounded hypothesis about the hidden contents of another person's mind. He is trying to facilitate a process by which the analyzand expands and deepens her own capacity for first-person authority on the contents of her mind. Now, as it turns out, no one can follow the fundamental rule. As Freud said, quote, there comes a time in every analysis when the patient disregards it. In my experience, that time comes very soon, um, usually within minutes, if that. Uh, there will be some kind of a disruption to the free flow of speaking one's mind, a pause or silence, a sudden change of subject, intense fatigue, the eruption of a somatic issue like coughing or stomach ache, um, um, headache, bowel troubles, and so on. These disruptions are not merely accidental, but are motivated in various ways, and they tend to function as inhibitions sometimes under the guidance of self-conscious will, often bypassing the will, often just outside of conscious awareness, though it is relatively easy to draw a person's attention to them. 
And I think these moments are of philosophical significance. They show first that there is something internally conflicted about the spontaneous unfolding of self-consciousness. And psychoanalysis promotes self-conscious awareness of these specific moments of internal conflict within self-consciousness. Second, these are moments in which the rational and the non-rational parts of the soul are speaking in manifestly different voices. And psychoanalysis takes up these moments when the non-rational and rational parts of the soul speak discordantly. And thus it works on the obverse side of virtue. Now, I think it's a mistake to think that these moments of conflicting voices always takes the form of a kind of threatened acrasia, whether the person's going to stand by her judgment or give in to temptation. I mean, that's a model with which philosophers have spent a lot of time thinking about this model. So did Aristotle. Um, but uh, they, these, uh, psychoanalysis, I think, also is very concerned with moments that call the faculty of judgment itself into question. And Freud formulated the concept ego precisely because he came to see that the repressed unconscious is only part of the story. And this is another point that I think analysts are familiar with, but non-analysts tend not to be familiar with this. There are, in addition, motivated strategies for living, for dealing with uncomfortable material, for keeping the repressed at bay that are themselves unconscious. And these modes of ego functioning themselves resist self-conscious understanding. And so here's a crucial point of the paper. Thus, the unconscious lies on both sides of the repressing, repressed divide. It's not just on the repressed side. And there's, there's a quote from Freud. Uh, this is 12 on the handout. We find ourselves in an unforeseen situation. We have come upon something in the ego itself which is unconscious and which behaves exactly like the repressed, that is, which produces powerful effects without itself being conscious and which requires special work before it can be made conscious. And he concludes, quote, we must admit that the characteristic of being unconscious begins to lose significance for us. It becomes a quality which can have many meanings, unquote. From an Aristotelian perspective, this is important because it means that the unconscious can show up as something that looks a lot like character. We are not just dealing with hidden forbidden wishes. Now, it would require a paper of its own to delineate how the Aristotelian and Freudian divisions of the psyche map onto each other. But for now, the important point is this. The ego is and takes itself to be the voice of reason in that it is the capacity for self-conscious deliberation and intentional action, for forming conscious beliefs on the basis of perception and argument, and for giving reasons to others. It takes itself to be rational and reality governed, and when all is going well, that's, it's right about itself. However, Freud's point is that a person's capacity for reason can itself be pervaded by unconscious, non-rational mental forces. And when that happens, reason can be perversely distor pervasively distorted by a non-rational form of thinking. So the issue is not just about thinking about repressed desire. And this complicates the question of what it would be for the rational and the non-rational parts of the soul to speak with the same voice. Now, I once worked with an Analyzan Mizet who seemed to habit, inhabit a disappointing world. 
No matter what happened, she would experience it in a disappointing way. Now, real-life disappointments are, of course, disappointing. Um, uh, and they happen. Uh, but even when something she wanted came to pass, there quickly followed a disappointing interpretive frame. Quote, my boss told me he is going to seek a promotion for me, but he probably felt he had to. He was just too embarrassed to promote X, who he really wanted to promote, and not to promote me as well. Many such examples. We can thus give sense to Ms. A living in a disappointing world in the sense of whether P happened or not P happened, she would experience the world as letting her down. And I came to think of her as sort of inhabiting what I think, uh, I had an image of like a, a geodesic dome of disappointment because it was constructed of small triangles. Um, in, 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 in the case of getting promoted, it was somebody else the boss really wanted to promote. And when a colleague to whom she was attracted invited her out on a date, Ms. A assumed that he had already been turned down by somebody else who he really wanted to go out with and was now, he had nothing better to do, so he called her up. Um, in, relationship, in relation to friends, X was always a better friend to Y than to her. In the family, there were the familiar triangles that the mother, mother loved her older brother more, the parents loved each other more than they loved her, and so on. So experiencing life in disappointing ways had become a kind of style of living, and it was experienced as rational. And the Lausanne was resolutely, you might say, unaware of how active she was in interpreting the world in this way. So if we can put this Freud's insight into you know, what I would think of as Aristotelian terms, the unconscious, the non-rational soul, has its own nature. It has an, its own form of mental activity. And Freud mentions timelessness and exemption from contradiction as two <coughs> hallmarks. And it's uncanny to see how these feature un features unconsciously pervade conscious life. From the point of view of consciousness, Miss A's disappointments look like a repetition, even if the repetition itself wasn't re initially recognized by her as such. Disappointment is happening over and over again. But if we try to capture the structure of Ms. A's subjectivity, each of these individual disappointments is derivative. There is, um, uh, uh, each, of their, each of them is there to sustain a kind of large-scale structure that life shall be disappointing. And this injunction has, I think, a different temporality from the historical narratives of life. Like when I was young, I was disappointed by my parents, and then as a teenager, I was let down by my boyfriend, and now in adult life, you know. Rather than that, that life shall be disappointing hangs over the historical narrative. It informs the narrative with a timeless quality of disappointment. So via the particular moments in life, this primordial structure, disappointment, is timelessly held in place. And this insight, I think, links the Freudian unconscious, I think, to the Aristotelian conception of character. The ethical virtues are based on character and character formation. And character is ethically significant, I think, for Aristotle, but for us in general as an ethical quality, because it has a quality of timelessness. The ethically virtuous person has an excellent character, and thus we can count on that person to act in outstanding ways, dependable ways, and it doesn't really matter whether it's this time or that time. Of course, this tendency to experience the world as, dis as disappointing is not itself a human excellence. Still, 
Even here, we can see that a certain timeless steadfastness by which uh, Miss, a and Miss A insists upon and thus protects her unhappiness. Now, Freud said that the unconscious is exempt from mutual contradiction. And as brilliant a philosopher as Donald Davidson, I think actually in giving the paper originally in London, interpreted this to mean that, a, that if a person consciously believes P, he may also unconsciously believe not P. And he then concluded that the unconscious must be like another mind with its own holistic connections among propositional attitudes. But Freud's point, I think, is not about believing in contradictions. And it's not about the productions. Um, it's, it's rather, it's about the productions of the un, uh, unconscious being unopposed by rational considerations to the contrary. That's what he meant by it. It's unopposed. So, when in an intrusive daydream, Ms. A imagines that I prefer another analyzant to her, and in the fury and disappointment that that evokes, the salient evidence to the contrary just seems to fall away, and her capacity for sort of seeing the other side of the coin goes into a kind of abeyance. I think that's what Freud was talking about. Now, Aristotle thought that the non-rational soul was childish in the sense that at best it could listen well to and follow grown-up advice. Freud adds, I think, rich and non-moralizing detail to what this childishness consists in. And this opens up the possibility of a more nuanced account than anything Aristotle could have envisaged of what it might be for the rational and the non-rational parts of the soul to speak with the same voice. For Freud, the non-rational soul is childish in this sense. It shows up as an imaginative, yet ultimately non-rational attempt to address a basic problem of human vulnerability, one that arose in childhood and whose attempted solution was crafted in childhood, but which unconsciously persists into adult life. Ironically, and I do find this an irony, our imaginations regularly act like a resourceful philosopher who lacks the capacity for rational thought. I mean, think of a philosopher as incapable of reason, and you've got the unconscious. I mean, I don't know if that's a help. Uh, it's a help to me. Um, as finite, non-omnipotent creatures, we are constitutively vulnerable in a world over which we have, at best, limited control. How disappointing that we cannot render ourselves invulnerable to disappointment. And an imaginary strategy which the young Ms. A chanced upon was to render herself invulnerable to the world's disappointments by getting there first and in fantasy inflicting the disappointment on herself. And this is a kind of omnipotent victory um, being in control of the disappointment that consists in a lifetime of suffering disappointment. And it has this illusory benefit. It protects this childish sense of omnipotence from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. There is, as it were, a hiding place for her omnipotence. And the disappointments paradoxically reinforce her sense of power and control. Now, of course, from an Aristotelian perspective, this is a disastrous outcome. In effect, it's a training of the non-rational soul to speak in ways that will ensure unhappiness. And psychoanalysis, as I understand it, is an intervention which attempts to undo this outcome and open up hitherto foreclosed possibilities of human flourishing. And I think the mode of its efficacy is of philosophical importance. So how does psychoanalysis help a person change her mind? 
Aristotle tells us that in the case of human excellence, the non-rational and rational parts of the soul speak with the same voice. And this would suggest that when we are working with a person who, who, or people who are at best en route to a better psychological form of life, we ought to expect moments when the rational and non-rational parts of the soul speak with different voices, and when communication between the parts of the soul either break down or reach a crisis point. And such moments can be put to creative use. Well into the analysis, an hour began when I could hear Ms. A hesitate she was pausing more than usual, breaking the silence with mundane topics such as an upcoming meeting, and then pausing again. And as she entered another pause, I asked if she noticed that she was pausing and whether there might be something on her mind that she was reluctant to say. She thought about it for a bit and then said that she had actually wanted to ask me whether I could reschedule an hour, and she now realized that she was hesitating. And as she thought about it further, she realized that she was afraid I would say no. And as she continued to associate, she realized that, and she had this daydream thought that sort of went in, into her mind and out of it almost at the same time, that I would probably be with someone else who I preferred to be with. Um, so here in the living present was one of these petite triangles of disappointment that made up the geodesic dome. Only this time, I was included in a triangle. And this, I think, is an instance of what Freud called transference. The significance of transference is that it is a voice of the non-rational soul that immediately and presently entangles the analyst. And it is, as it were, an attempt to draw the analyst inside an unconscious drama. And thus, Freud said, quote, transference presents the psychoanalyst with the greatest difficulties, unquote. And I think he meant both technical difficulties of handling it, but also the emotional difficulties of just tolerating it. Freud came to see that this was the key to the efficacy of psychoanalytic treatment. Quote, but it should not be forgotten that this is precisely, it is, it is precisely transferences that do us the inestimable service of making the patient's hidden and forgotten impulses immediate and manifest. For when all is said and done, it is impossible to destroy anyone in absentia or in effigy, unquote. In the transference, the voice of the non-rational soul is alive, immediately present, and palpable in the analytic situation. And the analyst and analyzan's joint task is to find a rationally informed voice that facilitates successful communication with the non-rational soul. So Ms. A associated, went on to associate to a litany of times throughout her life when she had wanted to speak, but stopped herself for fear of disappointment, thereby disappointing herself. She could see for herself that this was a fractal moment, that imme you know, immediately graspable in the present, but containing in itself this large-scale structure of her life. And she could see, and this is important, not just as a theoretical insight, but as an emotionally laden moment in the living present, that she was protecting herself from being disappointed by me by anticipating it and thereby inflicting disappointment on herself. And she also grasps immediately and from the inside that her sense of rationality had been skewed. She could see she knew with clarity and immediate availability to consciousness that this particular triangle was her creation. She then made a comment of unusual emotional intensity. Quote, the rage I anticipate, the rage if you say no, 
No one has even said no. It feels like an eternal obstacle, a weight on my throat, keeping me from speaking, unquote. Now, the power of these words cannot be gleaned from their content alone. To be sure, the statement was sincere, accurate, and insightful account of her feelings, and they also expressed her feelings, and they were uttered by her in the process of coming to self-understanding. And as such, I think the statement did have its therapeutic value. But that's not, that's not all the therapeutic value it had. On this occasion, the power of her words went beyond that. It was as though a weight literally lifted off her throat. One could hear her larynx open, her throat clear. Now, Freud taught that the unconscious often speaks in corporeal terms with bodily symptoms and corporeal representations of mental activity. In this moment, Ms. A is self-consciously describing her experience, and as she is using a metaphor to do so, it feels as though a weight has been lifted from her throat. And I think this is the voice of her rational soul, as Aristotle would put it, her ego, her self-consciously describing her emotional experience. But in the same moment, her non-rational soul, even though it has its own nature and its own form of mental activity, speaks in the same voice. It is a moment in which the word becomes flesh. Ms. A could feel that the various voices in her soul had come together. This speaking with the same voice had a phenomenology of vibrancy and efficacy. Ms. A could feel that in the power of her speech and self-conscious awareness, she was actively taking this particular triangle apart. And her awareness of her efficacy was constitutive of this efficacy. And she was aware of that. That is, her ability to break this particular triangle down was flowing immediately through her self-conscious understanding of the artificiality of this triangle. And for lack of a better, I've been trying to think about what the right term for this is. And you might help me with the vocabulary of this. But for now, for lack of a better term, this seems to me to be a kind of poetic efficacy, one that occurs when the non-rational soul and the rational soul come to speak with the same voice. With laughter, relief, and relish, she could now ask me, might I be willing to schedule a different hour? Uh, in asking this question, I could hear that she was, as it were, all in. She could feel her world changing. And this speaking with the same voice is itself a moment of integrating the rational and the non-rational soul. Do that again and again and again with the petite triangles as they keep coming up over time, and you have the process Freud called working through. Now, I think it's too simple to call this just a step-by-step -step process, but I hope I've shown a sufficiently discreet and clear moment that just takes the mystery out of the thought that over time, the analyzant herself can take apart a world that had previously held her captive. And this is, I think, ethically significant in that it enables a person to live more realistically and truthfully. And by now, it should be clear that psychoanalysis, I think, aims more than at theoretical insight into oneself that I tend to experience the world in disappointing ways. And I think it also aims at more than the practical ability to take ameliorative steps when one feels disappointment coming on, I mean, however valuable that may be. I think it aims to change the structure of the psyche by facilitating communication between the non-rational and rational parts of the soul. 
Now, obviously, much more needs to be said to elaborate and defend these ideas. But I hope at least I've said enough to vindicate Bernard Williams's suggestion that Freudian psychoanalysis has resources to help us in the formulation of a robust, non-moralizing moral psychology. And in the case we have been examining, psychoanalysis gives us the resources to give content to Aristotle's conception of the non-rational and rational parts of the soul speaking with the same voice, without simply assuming an unexplained obedience of the former to the latter. And as William says, this is crucial for the possibility of a non-moralizing Aristotelian moral psychology. Aristotle is clear that the ethical virtues are excellences of the non-rational part of the soul, while practical wisdom, phronesis, is an intellectual virtue. And yet the possibility of happiness depends on getting these excellences to work together. Without ethical virtue, uh, Aristotle suggests practical wisdom just degenerates into a kind of cleverness, the skill of obtaining uh, poorly chosen goals. And conversely, the development of true ethical virtues requires the aid of practical wisdom. And Aristotle begins by saying that the ethical virtues accord with right reason. But as I'm sure many of you know, he makes this important qualification. Quote, it's necessary to take another small step forward. Virtue is not merely a state in accord, kata, with right reason, but is with, meta, right reason. Aristotle takes this relation of being with right reason to be distinctive of his moral psychology. It is that which Socrates did not grasp as he mistakenly identified the, the ethical virtues as forms of reason. And the Freudian contribution, I think, is to offer a rich account of what this being with relationship consists in. Aristotle is clear that eudaimonia, regularly translated as happiness, is possible for humans, but not for other animals. For Aristotle, the non-rational souls of other animals lack the capacity to be with reason in the right sort of a way. And this is the capacity for the rational and non-rational parts of the soul to speak with the same voice. Without a substantial understanding of what this consists in, Aristotle's conception of eudaimonia, the highest human good, I think remains a placeholder. And Freud, I think, gives us resources to flesh out this distinctive nature of Aristotle's moral psychology. And I think this opens up possibilities for philosophers. To give one example, and I think I'll probably conclude uh, with giving this example, um, to give one example, um, it's a familiar thought in contemporary philosophy that our rationality and thus our freedom consists in our ability to step back in reflection and consider whether the evidence before us gives us a reason to believe or whether in the face of certain desires we have a reason to act. This conception fits a moral psychology in which the threat to rationality comes from like a sea of unruly desires, some of them conscious, some of them unconscious, pushing for satisfaction. These are treated in the psychology as sort of outside, and though reason can either sort of rule them in or rule them out. And this psychology also makes plausible the thought that by this very activity, we constitute ourselves. And this is a picture I associate with Christine Korsgaard, um, you know, another out outstanding philosopher but who with whose views I disagree. On this model, in the absence of our self-conscious commitments, all that remains are unorganized desires. But I mean, if you think about Miss A's, Miss A's desires, they were not disorganized. In fact, I think, 
Part of her problem was the fact that they were organized. Her non-rational desires were all too organized around a principle of disappointment. And her capacity of reason, for its part, had itself been infiltrated and shaped by her non-rational soul. And Ms. A was adept at stepping back in reflection and judging that her experience was disappointing. I mean, she could step back till the cows came home and judge that she really did have a good reason to be, you know, disappointed. It was this very, it was in this very act of stepping back in purportedly rational deliberation that she unwittingly manifested her unfreedom. So what Ms. A needed to move in the direction of psychic freedom and rationality was a break in the structure that she experienced as reason, a break in her familiar activity of stepping back and reflecting, and a break in, a, in her ordinary exercise of the capacity, her capacity to judge. And I don't think it does justice to the phenomena to think of Ms. A as constituting herself through those self-conscious judgments which manifest a disappointment. Those judgments were themselves surface manifestations of a powerful, unconscious, non-rational structure, that, and they added a kind of misleading patina of rational reflection. And I think it defies plausibility to insist that this non-rational structure of desire has nothing to do with her on the grounds that it's not the expression of her rational judgment. The unconscious structure is itself a manifestation of early, non-rational, but imaginative attempts to address a basic problem of how to live. And I think we should not rule out the thought that these expressions of this structure are coming from her simply because it does not fit a psychology that I think is inadequate to capture who we are. So Aristotle's conception of rational and non-rational parts of the soul speaking with the same voice, I think provides a more illuminating model of what our rationality and thus what our eudaimonia consists in. Here the central image is not of reflective distance, but of a coming together of voices into one. And rationality on this model in a funny way is manifested by a lack of distance between the two voices. Now obviously as rational animals, this obviously true, there are important moments of stepping back and reflecting. I'm not trying to deny that important truth. But in those moments of stepping back and reflecting, there's always going to be a further question of the manner in which that stepping back takes place. Is this, a mom is this moment of stepping back one in which rational and non-rational voices, parts of the soul, are in the process of coming to speak together? Or is a cruel superego punitively holding desire in place? Or is the reflection just one more move in a pseudo-rational life dominated by exaggerate, exaggerated acts of you know, rationality, in quotes? Certainly, the bare fact that self-conscious judgment has ruled a desire in or out is not sufficient to determine whether the voices of the soul are thereby coming to speak together. And I think this opens up room for us to consider genuine acts of reflection to nevertheless be mere appearances of rationality. They can also be mere appearances of our happiness. Aristotle's insistence that reason speak with the same voice as the non-rational soul manifests a deep intuition of what eudaimonia consists in. For Aristotle, our happiness consists in part in the knowledge that we are happy. Now, for the virtuous person, the virtuous person grasps the appropriate good and the appropriate means, and he understands that he's doing such. 
And in a happy life, he grasps that the happy life consists in just this kind of excellence of activity in accordance with reason. Now, of course, even within a happy life, you also ought to be aware that there's a possibility of overwhelming tragedy, of being like Priam, that could ruin happiness. But that awareness does not impugn the thought that our happiness partially consists in the correct and appropriate, appropriately grounded self-conscious comprehension of our happiness. And part of what it is for, uh, for a happy life to be lacking in nothing and to be a complete life, as Aristotle put it, a life of excellence according to reason, is that it possesses within itself the knowledge that it is the happy life that it is. Now, this knowing that constitutes our happiness is not just the propositional knowledge that we are living a happy life. It is also the rational, self-conscious grasp that the various voices in our soul are speaking with the same voice. And I think this is immediate, non-reflective knowing, a self-conscious experience of our rational and non-rational voices speaking together. And this is a kind of knowing that is foreclosed to other animals, and it is one of the reasons Aristotle excludes them from eudaimonia. I've got one more paragraph, and I'll stop. So psychoanalysis is a form of self-conscious speech that aims to enhance the efficacy of thoughtful self-conscious speech, an efficacy that runs through a self-conscious grasp of that very efficacy, and an efficacy that can change the structure of the psyche. It is a form of psyche formation that proceeds essentially through the psyche's own understanding of itself. And this understanding does have a theoretical as well as a practical aspect to it, but it is also poetic in the sense of self-creating through its own self-conscious grasp of its own meaning-making. And in this way, psychoanalytic practice seems to me to be the best model we have of what it is involved in reason coming to communicate with and thus inform the whole human soul, the non-rational part as well. So when Aristotle said that humans are by nature rational animals, he was isolating a distinctive capacity of the human soul. And I think psychoanalysis shows us what is involved in bringing that capacity to fruition. And this, I think, is a humanistic value. Do we wish to be creatures who take this particular responsibility for shaping our own psyches? Um, this is, yet it's not something that's easily measurable with empirically testable outcome studies. You know, one can measure how well different therapies treat a, diff a discrete pre-existing condition like depression, or one can measure the self-reports of satisfaction with treatment. But none of these measures, I think, get at what psychoanalysis offers. Ironically, psychoanaly what psychoanalysis offers is basically itself. To put it in Aristotelian terms, psychoanalysis is both kinesis and energia, its process and activity. It aims to help a person shape her mind in such a way that she can continue the life activity of taking the non-rational part of the soul into harmonious and creative relations with her thoughtful, self-conscious understanding. And to bring Freudian and Aristotelian language together, and perhaps in an unusual way, I want to say that psychoanalysis is both terminable as kinesis and interminable as energia. And that is, I mean, it's interminable in the sense that health is interminable, namely, even though my health, uh, you know, my health is, as energia is complete in any moment, there's no reason why I should ever want my health to come to an end. So psychoanalysis is this flourishing activity of the rational soul taking immediate poetic responsibility for the non-rational soul. And I think other names for this activity are truthfulness, rationality, freedom, and eudaimonia.
Thank you very much. Thank you.